you were wondering, that wasn't me that grew, I didn't grow hair or get a toupee. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but there were people who were like, hey, that was a good speaker, who is that guy? And it dawned on us that we didn't introduce him, but the reason we didn't introduce him is because he's actually one of our pastors. <laughs> Just saying. So, but we've only introduced him once from the pulpit. Last week, Dr. Jonathan Master, who spoke, is the full-time uh, dean of the School of Divinity at Cairn University. So he's actually my boss. So, you know, if you can kind of put a good word in me for a little... <laughs> but anyway, so Jonathan's part-time with us. He's one of our pastors, and we introduced him a while back. But if you weren't here, you might not have known that. So be sure to get to know Jonathan. He's, uh, his title is Pastor of Care and Leadership Development. So um, if you want to get in contact with him, you can find his um, contact on the back of the bulletin or in the web page. And um, Jonathan teaches an adult Sunday school class um, during the first hour on Sunday mornings as well. He's a gifted teacher. We're glad to have him and his wife, Elizabeth, and their daughters as a part of our fellowship. And then if you're really new to us, that guy right there, that's, the root, that's my boss here. So I have two bosses. But that's our lead pastor, Pastor Bob Travis. And then I'm the teaching pastor, and we have John Beagle, who is our uh, discipleship pastor. And we have Austin, who did the announcements. He's our pastor of outreach. And we have Jeremy our youth pastor. So you're getting to know our staff and really appreciate our staff and elders and leaders. We have children's ministry pastors. We have a lot of um, office uh, staff and so forth. So we're grateful to God and you can go online and see all of the staff. But if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 13 today. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and feel free to borrow a Bible, but you're really welcome to keep it. I actually had to sort of persuade a lady this morning. She's been coming. She says, oh, I used it. And I said, no, we really do want you to take the Bible home and read it. You can keep it. So please feel free to keep these Bibles if you don't have one at home to read. So we're in Genesis chapter 13, and we're doing a series. We study through the Bible verse by verse because the Bible is God's word. The Bible is not just a nice book of stories written only by men, but men moved by God have, have brought forth the plan of salvation, the message of the Bible, and the book of Genesis we've called Faith of Our Fathers because it's about how people walk with God by faith. And you do want to learn how to do that, and I'll tell you why. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him diligently. So the book of Genesis is teaching us how to come to God through faith, and it has four sections. The first section is creation, and even that's a, a step of faith because we're all looking around going, where'd all this stuff come from? And many people are proposing that it just has always been here, a naturalistic, matters eternal, maybe we evolved. That's one view. The faith view says this, Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the Bible teaches that we were created, that God, the intelligent, all-powerful, all-knowing designer, created the universe, created us, put us here for a purpose, to display his image on earth. But the second part of Genesis was the fall, where Adam and Eve took that fruit and, and sin, the original sin that has corrupted and contaminated. That's why the world's so messed up. That's why we suffer guilt and we have condemnation because of original sin. And we have corruption. We're sinners. And so the third part of the book of Genesis is a book where we're, or a section showing the corruption that comes out of sin. You saw Cain killed Abel. We saw the people became so wicked, God destroyed them with a flood. We see Noah comes off. What's he do? He gets drunk. And then we see the people told to spread out. And what do they do? They gather together in rebellion against God and they build a tower. And the end of chapter 11 sort of ends with 
oh no, here we go again. Is it just going to go on and on like this? Nations and, and people in rebellion against God. And that's where the last part of the book comes in, where we started last week. From 12 through 50, the first part of the book, those three sections cover thousands of years. 12 through 50 covers three generations because now God's zeroing in. He's going, I'm going to do something about the sin problem. And so the rest of the book of Genesis, I call creation of a nation for the purpose of redemption. So God looks down on this messed up world of sinners and he picks Abram. And if you were here last week, he says, Abram, now you, I'm going to use you to create a great nation. I'm going to make you great. And from your seed, which Jonathan showed us last week, it's Christ, I will bless all the nations. And so in essence, it was preparation for John 3.16. It was God so loved the world that he called Abraham so that through the nation of Israel, he could send his only son so that the gospel of Christ could go out to all the nations. And we were learning last week how Abraham walked by faith. But we saw at the end of the chapter, he, he messed up. And that's part of walking by faith. We're going to mess up. Remember, he lied. He's like, ah, this is my sister. It's not my wife. And so Genesis ends, or Genesis 12 ended with Abraham sort of with his tail between his legs, humbly having to acknowledge that he lied to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh says, all right, look, get out. And so he and his possessions and his family go back to Egypt. Now, we're going to put a slide up here. I want to show you sort of a quick map of the Holy Land. Now, Egypt would be down here. In fact, that's Abraham right there. Man, he's come far. I didn't realize how far he got last I saw. So anyway, so he's coming back from Egypt. And he's going to come back into the promised land. He's going to go right back to Bethel. Okay, now Bethel's right in the middle of the promised land. Now, he had originally come from up here in Mesopotamia. Okay? So when he first got into Bethel, we learned in chapter 12, he built an altar. So he lost his way. He goes down here, he lies. And now, with his tail between his legs, he's going to come back to Bethel. So let's pray and we'll look at this. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit will use your words to speak to us, to change us, to excite us and to show us more about Christ and to change our lives and help us to follow him and love him and worship him and serve him with all of our hearts. Thank you for his plan of salvation, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life that he offers to anyone who comes in repentance and faith. So bless your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Start with me in verse one. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev he and his wife, and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And as he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, now notice, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. I want to make an observation here. When he first got in the land, he built an altar at Bethel, which means the house of God. And he worshiped, and he was close to God. But what happened? He lost his way. How did he get down in Egypt? And I think we have a, a real life lesson here, and that is, if you've been a believer, even for a little bit of time, you realize how easy it is to lose your way, to go, wait a minute. I'm beginning to realize I'm far from the Lord. How did I get over here? Well, Regardless of how you drift from the Lord, the solution is always the same. You go back to Bethel. You go back to the beginnings. You go back to the foundation of how you came to the Lord. See, this is a picture in Scripture where it goes on in the New Testament. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know you're working really hard for me. 
I know that your deeds are strong and you won't tolerate false teaching, but I have something against you. Jesus says, you've left your first love. See, they were busy for Jesus, but they had fallen away from that personal, devotional love for Christ. And so he says, here's what I advise you to do. Repent and do the deeds that you did at first. And so this morning, I just want you to ask yourself, and I ask myself, have I kind of lost my way? Have I kind of lost my passion with Christ? Have I sort of been compromising like Abraham? And it's time to get back to Bethel. So, for example, Paul used a, a romance illustration in 2 Corinthians 11. He goes to the Corinthians who had lost their way. He says in 2 Corinthians 11:2, I am fearful because I engaged you or betrothed you to Jesus. But he says, I'm afraid that the serpent has craftily led you astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. I mean, it's not all that complicated, is it? Jesus wants to be first in our lives. He wants us to love and seek him and live our lives for him, not because we're afraid of him, but because of his wonderful grace that he gave his life on the cross for us. The Bible says he died for us, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him. But isn't it, isn't it sad, isn't it true that we easily lose our way? And sometimes it's, you know, we're like, well, wait, we're in America. We have all these privileges. We can go to church. There's no persecution. Yeah, and the pleasures and cares and preoccupations of this world. And we wake up and all of a sudden we're like, man, I'm not near as close to Christ as I used to be. So let's, let's note from this. If God's speaking you to, this, to your heart this morning, go back to Bethel. Repent from whatever it is that's pulling you away from Christ. It doesn't have to be something terrible. It's just something that's taking the place of Christ. All right, let's keep reading. So, now Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land couldn't sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they weren't able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of, herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, as an ominous note, Moses adds, now, the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. So just a quick reminder here. When Moses writes this, they're on the, the eastern shores of the Jordan River, right? The, the nation of Israel has wandered for 40 years. They're about to go back into the promised land and dispossess the Canaanites. And we learned about the Canaanites. These are wicked people. And so there's a couple things going on. Here's Abram and Lot and Bethel. There's not enough space for the two of them. But part of it is because the Canaanite was occupying most of the land. And so, Abram does something that I would have never seen coming. I sure wouldn't have done this. Look what Abram does. Verse 8. Then Abram sent, said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. We're brothers. He's like, dude, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Now, now watch this. Look at verse 9. Please. Separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Did he just do that? Did he give Lot first pick? It wasn't Lot who received the call of God to come to this promised land. It was Abraham. He was just tagging along. And yet, look at the selfish, selflessness of Abraham. He says, you just, go, whatever you pick, I'll, I'll, I'll settle for the rest, okay? Now, if Lot was godly like Abram, because that's a godly thing to do. 
If Lot was godly like Abraham, he would have said, no, no, no. Uncle Abram, please, you're the man of God. God called you. You pick what you want first. I'll just be happy to get my portion. But we're sort of getting a look at Lot's heart. Look at verse 10. Sounds very much like Eve in the garden when she was looking at the tree. And Lot lifted up his eyes. And he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Hmm, very appealing. Uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as far as you go to Zoar. Now, so he's probably up on a mountain up here in Bethel, and he's looking over this way towards the Dead Sea, right? He's looking this way towards the Dead Sea, and he sees this lush, beautiful, fertile area, the choicest of the land. Now, Moses adds, hey, it ain't like that anymore, because God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you've ever been over to the nation of Israel, you go to the Dead Sea, you go down in this area where Masada is, it's, it's nasty. It's all salty and sulfury and, and uninhabited. But before God sent brimstone and fire, it was, it was the best. It was beautiful, right? It was appealing. So Lot's like, yeah, thanks, Unc. I got this. I'm taking the best, right? So watch what happens. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and he moved his tents as far as Sodom. And you're going, hmm, wait, I thought, they were, I thought they were pasture people. Sodom is a city, right? And then the next verse sort of goes, what? Now, by the way, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Now, Moses is going out of his way to say, listen here, we're all sinners, but there are degrees of sinners. And these guys are high-level sinners, exceedingly wicked. And by the way, against the Lord, flagrant, godless, wicked people. Now, part of that was homosexuality. This is where we get the term sodomy from, okay? And God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis later on, chapter 19. But... It wasn't just that. We learned from Isaiah that they were also a very selfish people. It was a very wealthy people, and they were selfish with their possessions, but they also, they also were hell-bent on living homosexual lifestyles. Okay? There are a lot of people today saying, hey, listen, the Bible, the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, and you, know, you guys are misinterpreting it. The Bible clearly condemns the practice of homosexuality as a sin. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily say, you weren't born that way, you chose to have same-sex attraction, okay? That's very up in the air. It's really hard to say how people develop that. Maybe people are born with a propensity to same-sex attraction, but they don't have to practice it, okay? And so, please, let's not throw people under the bus if they have homosexual feelings. We shouldn't throw anybody under the bus, but particularly... We don't say, ah, you just chose to live that way. But, but the Bible teaches that to practice homosexuality is sinful, exceeding sinful. However, so do I go, well, yeah, so I'm just an adulterer, so that's okay. No, adultery is exceedingly wicked also. In fact, in the book of Genesis, later when Joseph was tempted to commit adultery, he said, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? Homosexuality is, is one among a number of sexual sins. And if you struggle with it or you know someone that does, we're not going to condemn you and say, oh, you wicked person. The gospel is for sinners. 
Jesus came to forgive those who repent and believe in him and give power to all of us to change. Could somebody say amen? amen? We're like, yeah, you need to talk to those addicts, Brother Allen. We're all addicts. We're sin addicts, right? It's just some people are also substance addicts. So if you are addicted to sexual sin, whether it's homosexuality or some other sin, Christ can set you free, but it involves repentance and surrender and faith and accountability and learning how to get the gospel into your life and prayer in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, note though the text says he moved his tents as far as I'm. So he's, he's living right next to them. You're going, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Well, let's keep reading chapter 14, or verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. Now, what's interesting is the text says, Lot lifted up his eyes and says, I want this. Lifted up his eyes and said, I want this. And God says, Abraham, lift up your eyes now, because it's all yours. Matter of fact, you know this song? Abraham wrote this song. We just changed it for America. Here's how Abraham sang. This land is my land. 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 God actually told him. He says, walk about the land. Look at verse 17. Arise, walk about the land. I will give it to you. That's, that's astonishing. This is, this is a great promise of God to give to the descendants of Abraham, the holy land. You're like, is that what those people are still fighting about over there? Yes, they are. However, Abram was not preoccupied with material things. He wasn't about looking over his real estate portfolio and saying, yeah, man, I own so much stuff. Look at verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And what did he do? There he built an altar to the Lord. See, Abraham was about worshiping God. He was about living for God. He wasn't about stockpiling land. He, he was a man of faith who believed God's promises. And so, so, so you and I might say, well, what do you want me to do, Pastor? Build an altar in my backyard? No, you don't need to build an altar. Jesus Christ is your altar. He hung on the cross. And we continually come and we worship God. And we bow before the Lord Jesus, who was our great sacrifice, who paid for our sins. And we offer ourselves to him by faith. And we say, Jesus, I worship you. I thank you. This stuff, thank you for it. But, but you give and take away, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to live for you. That's the heart of a true follower, a worshiper of God, a person who says it's not about me. It's about living my life for the Lord. That's what God wants us all to be like, and we're all in this thing together. We don't have it all figured out. That's why we read the Bible, so we learn together. But then we come to a really cool story that's, that, that this was the backdrop for. Back then, they were always fighting all in this area, from Egypt up to Mesopotamia. They're always fighting for land. And whoever seemed to accumulate the most power, right, because of corruption, they would go, look, we're strong, so now let's go to all the other towns and put a beat down on them and tell them every year you have to pay a tribute to us, right? And it was constantly shifting back and forth. Who was in power? Which king was in power? And they would make alliances and Two kings would line up and say, hey, let's go down and kick these people's butts and then tell them every year you need to pay us. And they called them vassals, right? And 
it's, it's wrong, it's, it's evil, but there's nothing you could do. You're like, if we don't send these guys tribute money, we're going to get killed. They're going to come back down and kill us. It sounds like the mafia, right? They were roughing people up and collecting money from them. So when we get to chapter 14, there are four kings up in this area who had come down and taken this area, especially down here where Sodom and Gomorrah was, and these, these kings were vassals. There were five of them down here. And they paid tribute for, for 12 years straight. And on the 13th year, they said, I'm darn mad, and I'm not going to take it any longer. And they said, we're not going to pay anymore. Now, you remember back when you were in school, when the bully used to get your lunch money every day, and you took karate for two years, and there came a day where you said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to stand up to the bully. And so the kings down here decided that they had enough strength now. They had calculated and counted the cost, and they said, we're not going to pay. And so when the kings up here, led by, ready for this guy's name, Cheddar Laomer, sounds like a new type of cheese. He says, we're coming down here, and we're going to put a whooping on you. And that's the backdrop. And we wouldn't even have this story if it wasn't for the fact that Lot was down here, because he's going to get involved. So let's read. Verse 1, it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar, Chedorlaomer, there he is, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemer, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these came as allies to the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Now, the Valley of Siddim, if you've ever been to the Promised Land, is, is south of the Dead Sea, okay? And what it's famous for, this is interesting, is it has tar pits, much like the La Brea tar pits in California. If you've ever seen a tar pit, it's really bizarre. Look it up, Google it, just do tar pits. And you'll see these pictures, and, and it's like, you know, in the middle of nowhere, it's like a, like a black lagoon. It's actually organic matter, but it's like, it's like natural tar, right? And all the way back in Bible times, they used this to seal up ships, to hold bricks together, right? I mean, it was, it was, people would travel to get this stuff, but it was also a dangerous place to be running around on horses and battles, right? So they gather at the tar pits to stake their grounds and to have a battle against these kings that are coming down. Okay, so let's read what happens. Twelve years, verse 4, they, they served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and the Zuvim and the Emim, verse 6, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and all the Amorites who lived in Hazan Tamar. So, ominously, these four kings are coming down and they're whooping up on everybody, right? Taking, taking, taking their, their spoils. And they're about to come to Sodom, right? So the king of Sodom and his five pals, they all come down to Sodom and they say, let's see what you got, okay? So, verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bila came out and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sodom. Dun, 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 dun. Now, if you're a movie, we'd have a commercial now, right? We'd be like, what's going to happen, right? Verse 9, they came against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, 
And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. They didn't die. They just they got quagged up. You know, their horses and whatever they had, their camels, they just lost. And those who survived fled to the hill country. So then they, that is, Jedorlaomer, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And then, kind of as a side note, oh, and they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed. For, now, look at this. For he was living in Sodom. Wait, what just happened? Back in chapter 13, it says, he moved as far as Sodom. Again, chapter 14. Now he's living right in Sodom. Time we get to chapter 19, he's one of the leaders in the gate. We're going, hmm, I'm noticing a poor progression of choices on the part of Lot. So Lot is taken hostage along with a whole bunch of people. We now have a terrorist hostage situation. And so Chedorlaomer and his kings begin to take all of these prisoners back to where they want to go, back here to Mesopotamia. They end up here in Dan. So, so, that, so they, come, they come down this way, and they're coming up this way through the promised land. They end up at Dan. Meanwhile, this is a great story. That's what, you know, why do you need to watch TV? Read the Bible, right? <laughs> so meanwhile, okay, one of the guys who, who was lost in the battle, they call him a fugitive, he gets loose, and he, he flees to the Oaks of Mamre, which is right there, because that's where Abram is. And he probably knew that Lot was related to Abram, and he's like, Abram's a rich guy. i got to tell his rich uncle that he's been kidnapped. Right? So look at verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Now note that. He's called the Hebrew here for the first time. Back in chapter 11, it says that Abram was a descendant of Eber. And this is where the word we think Hebrew comes from, a descendant of Eber. So the Jewish people began to call themselves Hebrews at this time. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar. And these were allies with Abram. Now one of the things that we've been trying to teach you to do as you're studying the Bible is to look up words in the Bible and say, what was that Hebrew or Greek word? You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be able to read Greek or Hebrew. There are tools available, computer tools and books that, that you can just look up and go, what did that word allies actually mean in Hebrew? You ready for this? This is really interesting. Literally, it means they were possessors of the covenant with Abram. Wait, what? God made a covenant with Abram, and here's some Gentiles that are living around him, and it says they were possessors of the covenant with Abram. So it could be a couple things. It could have been a different covenant that Abraham had made with these guys as allies, or somehow, like the Old Testament Ruth and Uriah and other Gentiles, there were Gentiles who realized, hey, the God of Abram and the Jews is the right God, and I'm getting on board with them. Okay? So Abram had some allies, some, some, some friends, and so these guys are going to help him to go and rescue the hostages. You're like, are they going to have Black Hawk helicopters and stuff? No, but it's still a cool story. Verse 14, and when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318. See, he had his, his bodyguards. These, these aren't just like Mo, Larry, and Curly. To be a man of that kind of wealth, you better have a security force that's trained, right? So he gets this high-level trained group 
and it says there were 318 of them, and they went in pursuit. Now, mind you, this isn't all that he had. He's not like, hey, there's 300 of us. We'll fight against Dan. We'll be the predecessors of Gideon, right? No. He's got allies, and this isn't the only people, but he's got some real key people, right? And Abraham was no dumbbell. He also was obviously a fairly bright strategist for war. He probably had less men. So he did something very clever. He attacked them at night. Wait. Wait, at night. Trenton. Washington Crossing. The Hessians. Christmas Eve. Wow. I thought George Washington thought that idea up. No. It goes way back. Right? So keep reading. He divided his forces, verse 15, against them by night. He and his servants. And he defeated them. And he pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods. And he also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions. And also the women and the people. Hostage, rescue, accomplished. Awesome, right? Now, wow, that's a pretty cool story. But all of a sudden, this, this chapter ends with like, wait, what just happens now? Two kings... When Abraham comes back down, two kings come out to meet him. And they want to talk to him. The first king is actually the king of Sodom. So apparently the king of Sodom didn't die. He just got covered with tar. And... Now, let's think about this. If God says Sodom is an exceeding wicked people, would it be safe to assume that the king of Sodom was a wicked man? Nod your head. Yeah. So the king of Sodom was not a godless man in any way, or a godly man in any way. And then another king comes out to meet him, who, who we don't know where this guy comes from. His name is Melchizedek, okay? And these two guys have a brief exchange with Abram, and, and this is a very important passage in the Bible. It's quoted in Psalms, it's quoted in the New Testament, so we need to know it. Look at verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, which is near Jerusalem. And then this new guy comes on the scene. Look at, look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. Now we could stop and spend an hour just on that verse. First of all, the word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And Salem is right here where Jerusalem is, right? And, he's, and there's, he's a priest, and he brings bread and wine, and you're going, you can't have priests yet. Moses was the one who started the priesthood. And God's going, I did, right? So there's a lot of mystery, like, who is this guy? I thought Abraham was the only guy that was following God. And we know that Melchizedek was a godly man. The Bible's going to tell us in Hebrews that he was greater than Abram, right? So out of nowhere comes this man. We don't know where he's from. We don't know his genealogy. Who is he? And he shows up, and he's a priest, and he's a king, right? Well, let me say this about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is what we call a type of Christ. He is an Old Testament prefigurement, a trailer, so to speak, of what Jesus will be like. The Bible will tell us in the New Testament that Christ is a priest like Melchizedek. And so, as we look at this guy, some Bible scholars and, and Bible teachers feel that Melchizedek is actually Christ himself. 
I don't, but you can read that in Hebrews 7, and I want to encourage you, those of you who want to go deeper. Hebrews chapter 7, the whole chapter is about how Melchizedek is like Christ. But just know what happens. The guy comes out with bread and wine. And you're going, bread and wine, was he just bringing him a snack? Or is there, is there going to be a prefigurement? You know, bread and wine isn't all that insignificant, is it, when we come to the New Testament? But in addition to that, he's a priest of El Elyon, which, which in Hebrew, the Most High God, Almighty God, the Sovereign God, the true God. Unlike all the Canaanites and all these people who are pagan and godless, there's people who are worshiping the true God. And notice what he says in verse 19. He blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of God, Most High. Blessed be Abram of El Elyon. Now notice what he says about him. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. Now, by the way, remember, everybody had gods back then. They most had a bunch of them. In fact, the book of Joshua says Abraham's dad was an idolater. So what are your gods like? What? What are your gods like? Abram Melchizedek, like, I don't have gods. There's only one god. It's El Elyon. Oh, yeah, what, 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 what land does he dominate? Oh, no, no, no. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. Sound like somebody you know when he came out of the grave and he said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples and I'm with you always. Can I tell you this? If you follow Jesus Christ, you are following the Lord of heaven and earth. There are no rivals. There are no close seconds. There is no one else but Christ alone. And if you are not a follower of Christ, I would strongly urge you to reconsider your pursuits because Jesus is Lord of all. And the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So it's a good idea to follow him. Amen? So, so Abram is blessed by Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek blesses God, verse 20. Blessed be God most high has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then notice this little kind of side note. Oh, and he um, gave him a tenth of all. What just happened there? There's all kind of cool little things that, the author, that Moses has slipped in there. What just happened there? He gave him a t- He just gave a tithe. What's that? Tithe means 10%, right? And this is the first time in the Bible that we're introduced to this idea of giving 10% of your stuff to God, right? And then later on under the, the law of Moses, then it was commanded and people were like, I can't afford that, Right? I can't afford to give God that. And God says, you know what? You can't afford not to. Malachi 3.10 says this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and test me and see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. Now, as we come into our stewardship campaign, we're going to talk about money. People are like, oh, see, they're talking about money. Yeah, I'm going to talk about money. You know why? Because the Bible talks about money. And what you do with your money is a big barometer of what's going on in your heart. And I need to be challenged with that. That's part of discipleship. So, Abram gives a tenth to Melchizedek. Keep reading, verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now, this is kind of interesting. There's a lot of stuff here. He just whipped five kings and a bunch of gold and sheep and all kind of stuff. And so the king of Sodom, of all things, this wicked man says, Abram, I'm so grateful. Just give me my people. You can have all this stuff. And Abram goes, I don't want a dime from you, sir. And you're going, why not? 
Because if you're paying attention back in chapter 12, when Abraham got booted out of Egypt, it says Pharaoh gave him a bunch of stuff and he took it. But the king of Sodom says, Here's, here, take, take this stuff. And Abraham's been good, going, man, I am rich. God, thank you for making me rich. But look what he does instead. Abram says in verse 22 to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. Note, that's exactly what Melchizedek said. He goes, I swore to him that I will not take a thread or a sandal or a thong or anything from you. Now here's why. Lest you should say that I made Abram rich. See what Abraham was doing here? His ultimate concern was for the glory of God, for the reputation of, of, of the living God. He would not take a stitch from this man because he did not want anybody to think that anything about him was other than a gift of the living God. He wanted God to get the glory. And you know, that causes us to wrestle with all kinds of things. In the book of 3 John, it says this. When the early church sent out teachers, they would not accept help from unbelievers. You're like, Pastor Bob, listen. We could get the money for this building quick. We'll just stand out, we'll stand out at the light with little pans and go, give to Bible fellowship. And we'll ask all the unbelievers to give to Bible fellowship. But to me, if we ask unbelievers to give to Bible fellowship, we're not giving God glory. What are we saying about God? Oh, our God, he, he's going to need blood money. He, you know, he's a little short. And so we'll have to rely on unbelievers to, 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 to supply for us. The psalmist said in Psalm 37, I'm, I was young, now I'm old. He says, I've never seen the righteous begging for bread. And so one of the things we need to ask ourselves is as we do things, is what will bring God glory? Scripture says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And you say, all right, all right, so what do I do with this? Remember, we said, every time you read the Bible, and I'm trying to help you to develop this habit, when you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, it doesn't end with, and so the moral of the story is do this, this, and this. You and I are to think and pray and look and see what might God be showing us in these passages. I want to suggest four things quickly as we close. Number one, way back in chapter 13, as soon as strife started, verse 7, there was strife. Notice how quickly Abram sought to eliminate strife. He says, look, we're family. We can't have this. So the first principle I want to remind you of, this is an important New Testament principle, is the Bible teaches that Christians are to strive for unity. Unity doesn't happen naturally. You know why? Because we have to interact with sinners. I mean, if they were like us, you know, we wouldn't have that problem. So all of a sudden, people get married, and they're like, why can't we get along? Ready? I'm going to tell you why. Because you're a sinner. And you know what else? You married a sinner. And you know what? Your kids are sinners. And your neighbors are sinners. And your relatives are sinners. Sinners don't naturally get along. And so the New Testament says in Ephesians 4, I urge you to, to, to walk worthy by being humble and forgiving. Be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I thought, wow, what a relevant application for where we are in our church. Because why were they having strife? Because they were growing, right? And growing pains means changing. And changing means somebody's not going to like it, right? And there's a potential 
for strife. Now, I thank God. I believe that there's a, a real unity right now in our board and our leadership and in our church. But let's not assume that unity happens naturally. So if you hear people gossiping, the biblical thing to do is to go to them and say, hey, have you talked to that person? Matthew 18 says, go to that person first. If you're gossiping, if you're backbiting, if you're causing division, I speak as for Christ. Stop it. I don't have an agenda here. I don't think we have anything going. This is what we need to be reminded. This is biblical Christianity. You're going to hurt others. They're going to hurt you. If someone has hurt you, the Bible says you go to them in private. You humble yourself. If you've hurt someone, apologize to them. This week, I had to apologize for being a little too forceful on my opinions. That's part of being a Christian, learning to get along well with other Christians, not to go, ah, oh, those people are jerks. I'm out of here. So we're taught in Scripture to strive for unity. Now, for some of you, I'm not even talking about here. I'm talking about with your spouse. If you aren't getting along with your spouse, that's where the gospel comes in, right? You can't say, oh, that's just who we are. You know, we're Italians. We just shout at each other. Sorry, Italians. Just kidding. I could have used Irish. No. Outbursts of anger are sin. And when there's strife and bickering and disagreement, that's not just the way we are. That's sinful. And Christ, through the Spirit, wants to change that. And sometimes it takes humility. It might take counseling. It might make, take apologizing. But if you find yourself not getting along with people wherever you are, there's a good chance that the problem isn't them, it's you. So let's just pray that God will continue to develop a unified church. Somebody say amen. amen. Instead of going, is he talking to me? No, I don't have, I'm not looking out there going, yeah, you, you, I'm going to put my laser on you. No, this is a good thing. We don't have to wait till disunity happens. We warn ahead of time, so we pray. Okay, secondly, so strive for unity. Number two, we need to follow Abram's selflessness. This is what it means to be like Christ. I can't believe he did that. He goes, you go first. That goes against everything. You know, this is what Jesus did. The Bible says, have this attitude in you, which was in Christ. He's God, but he didn't regard equality with God, something he had to grasp, but he humbled himself, he emptied himself, and he came down to earth, and he took on the form of a man, and he became a servant, and he was obedient to death. Why did he do that? Because he was putting us above himself. That's what Christ-likeness is. It's putting others above yourself. It's not having to have it our way. It's not having to always be right. And we're so good at maneuvering to get what we want. We're subtle. But God goes, I can get below that. And I know the Holy Spirit because he's working in my heart. The Holy Spirit just goes right to the bone. He says, I'll pierce to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Are you being selfless or are you being selfish? And so let's pray that God will help us to wrestle through when we have to make those decisions and say, Lord, I realize now I've been selfish instead of selfless like Christ. Third, let's learn the lesson of Lot. And that is, separate yourself from sin. See, this is, this is tough. Lot heads over there, he goes, man, this is good looking. What happens in Sodom stays in Sodom, right? And before you know it, he's living there. And we read in the New Testament that his soul was tormented by the things that he saw, and you're going, then why are you living there? Why are you raising your family there? And we live in a culture where there's so much godlessness. There's so much sexual sin, drunkenness, materialism, leaving God out, making sports the end all of life. We live in a culture of godless people, 
And it's very easy to be drawn into that. Young people, I want to encourage you. Be careful who your friends are. The Bible says if you walk with wise men, you'll be wise. A companion of fools will suffer shame. Bad company corrupts good morals. But it doesn't just stop with young people. Some of you adults, you need to consider, should I be with these people doing this? Am I trying to win them to Christ? Or am I just wanting to have my foot in the world? The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate and don't touch the unclean thing. God is calling for his church to be holy, to be godly, to be separated from sin. Now, it doesn't mean we lock ourselves up into little rooms and we go, ew, I don't want to be around bad people because they say bad words. See, Jesus modeled it perfectly because he was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sin. That's what the Bible says. But yet, what did they call Jesus? A friend of sinners. So we have to be very careful that we're not allowing ourselves to be conformed to this world, that we're, that we're allowing little Sodoms in our heart and going, I know this isn't right, but it's fun. And we need to come out and say, hey, I don't care if the world's doing this. It's not right. And I don't want to live within it. I don't want to act like it. I don't want to be conformed to it. I want to be different. I want to shine as a testimony. You're like, Pastor... You're kind of getting after me. That's what somebody said. You're really getting after me. I said, no, I wasn't. I said, but God is. But he gets after me too. I'm not going, you sinners need to stop this. Yeah, this is what the word of God does. It kind of shows us, right? But I want to close with something very positive. We strive for unity. We want to be a selfless church. We want to separate from evil. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the most important thing is like Abram and like Melchizedek, we want to seek Christ. So I want to close with this verse. In Hebrews chapter 7, it compares Christ to Melchizedek. And it says, Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, and he lives forever. And then this is what it says. Therefore, because he lives forever, he can save forever everyone who comes to God through him because he ever lives to pray for them. So I got two things that I want to say about seeking Christ. Number one, some of you today, you need to give your life to Christ. Stop putting it off. What are you waiting for? The best you know how, surrender to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I do believe that you were nailed to the cross for my sins. And the best I know how, I've been the guttermost, but the Bible says in the King James, he can save you to the uttermost. I don't care if you're religious or irreligious, come to Jesus and give your life to Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, please do that today. But if you have done that, you don't just come to God once, right? We spend the rest of our lives coming to God through Christ. And you know what we often need to do? We need to come to him for comfort and consolation. Because I'll be the first one to say, I'm selfish. I don't always separate from sin. And frankly, I don't always strive for unity. But when the Lord speaks to my heart, what do I do? I go, ah, well, it's everybody else. No. The same thing that Jesus calls all of us to do. Just repent and come to him and know that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's Christ. Jesus isn't up here to beat you up. He's not, he's not out to get you. He loves you just as you are. Just too much to leave us that way. And so let's take to heart these lessons and say, Lord, help us to live for you. Help us to reach lost people. We're going to mess up, but I thank you that you're a high priest that lives forever. And one day when I die and I stand before God, He's going to welcome me into heaven because there's Jesus, my great high priest like Melchizedek, who shed his blood for my sins and who has purchased me unto God. Amen?
Amen. Let's close in prayer. If you haven't come to Christ yet, and today the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, and you want to give your life to Christ, you want to do what the Bible says, you want to come to Jesus by faith, then right there in your seat, right now, while Christians are praying for the power of the Holy Spirit, the best you know how, just say to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, I hear you, I believe you, and I want to follow you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I, I today want to turn and follow you by faith. Please come into my life. Forgive me. Change me. Grant me eternal life and help me to follow you the rest of my life. If that's your prayer this morning, while every head's bowed and every eye's closed, I'd like to pray for you. The Bible says, don't be ashamed to confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. Is there anyone who says, Pastor Tom, would you pray for me? I want to start following Christ. Today I've made that decision. Don't be embarrassed. I'm not going to press it long, but if there's anyone, just raise your hand and look up at me till I can see you. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. Praise the Lord. Three people. Praise the Lord. Yes. Praise the Lord. Amen. Four. It's not about numbers. It's about precious people. Father, I pray for these four folks who have said they want to follow Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would truly draw them to yourself and that they would know that you said, Lord Jesus, anyone who comes to you, you will never cast them out. So, Lord, help us to minister to these, these folks and encourage them in their journey with Christ. And, Lord, thank you for, for the rest of us, the flock, the people of God, and maybe those who are struggling today. Lord, we're ashamed of our failures but we thank you that there's no condemnation. Bring us back to Bethel. Light this church on fire, Lord. May the Holy Spirit just work in our hearts to love and encourage one another. And Lord, we pray that we can reach many more souls for Christ as we pray and worship like Abraham, as we live and give and strive together for unity and separate from sin. So bring great healing to our families, to broken marriages, to broken homes. For those who have lost their way, welcome them back, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for the power of your word. And I, Lord, thank you that there are many healthy, strong believers in this church. And I pray that you'll send them out excited today, equipped to shepherd their families, their children, and other believers in this church. And raise up many more leaders, we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. God bless you. For those of you that made decisions, if you could just let me know. I want to give you a little booklet when you leave. And... I want to thank all of you for coming. Continue to pray for our church. Thank you. God bless you. <clears throat>